Interest rates will go up and down over the life of your home loan. So if interest rates rise in 2022, how can we best plan for them and other unexpected events so we don't get stuck eating two-minute noodles for dinner every night? Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now, we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Nice introduction, Megan. And if anybody has watched the blooper reel, they'll realise that I tried to say that five times, but Megan had to take over. So today we're talking about how to manage our cash flow in the face of things like interest rate rises, but also major catastrophes, you know, and things that change the trajectory of our lives and also the economy. To help us put a plan in place, we're joined by Terry Condon of Cashflow Co. But before we get into that, there's a special house in Megan's backdrop. What is it? This I like this one, Megan. You like this one? You might have to move All to the right, side so to show us. Wide screen on this. Look at this. Ooh. This is Birds in Flight. Or Birds Bird in Flight. It's in Bird San in Miguel, uh, on the San Miguel Island in Portugal. Sorry, I was away from my microphone when I said that. <laughs> um, now it was designed by architect Bernardo Rodriguez, and it is in an area where there's a lot of frequent winds and showers. So there are really, really interesting protection zones within this house. It's fascinating. If you love architecture, get on and have a look at that one. It's it's a cracker. It's beautiful. Yep. All right. So if you want to buy one of those houses, <laughs> you're probably going to get a mortgage. You're probably going to have to budget, save, invest. There's all these things. <laughs> lot to do. Now, we have had record low interest rates for some time now. It's been amazing for our ability to borrow more money and to buy, you know, the best that we can possibly afford in terms of a first home. But the honeymoon isn't going to last forever and it's got us thinking about how we can help you future-proof your cash flow. Our guest today is Terry Condon and he is he has a really lovely and really different way of looking at money, which, which we love. We, we like bringing you new things to think about. Terry, welcome. I thank you for having me. Now, tell us a little bit about the seven principles in the money mentorship and why it's important for first-time buyers. Yeah. Um, before I give you the principles, I'd love to give you, I guess, the, the 
theory. <laughs> yeah. Megan goes straight for the jugular. I do. I get, to, I get straight to the point. Get to the point. I'm well known for it. You yeah. Know. No, I love it. I love it. There's not um, a lot of courtship just... in my life. I'm just straight to the point. You know what? I think they're just going to make better sense when, I, when we do. So um, <laughs> what I want to say is these principles, they're, they were ideas and they're ideas that first worked for us. And then there are ideas that we tested with other people and we've refined these over the last two, two and a half years now working with people all over Australia because what, what I found really interesting is certain people have certain ways they like to do things. This works for me, right? And what we try to do is separate out what works for us versus what just works. <laughs> and so we've kind of been on that mission for the last couple of years working with people um, all over the country to, to figure out what that is. And these principles we couldn't sort of talk through, they form the basis of the method that we teach in our program, the money mentorship. And what I would say is they're very counterintuitive. So everything you've kind of been taught, <laughs> you, you kind of want to let go of that a little bit uh, because what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure that you save sustainably. So mm -hmm. anyone can save money. Anyone can read a book, follow a prescription. And we, we define prescriptions as plan on a page, just follow this, do this, you know, automate this, set this up, and then just forget about it. Mm. Um, anyone can do that. And that's really great for you to do when you're most of the time when you're, you know, your life's very simple. Maybe you're single, you've got a fixed income. That works great. I used all those tools. They work fantastic. Mm. What we found is people start to struggle in their lives when their lives do shift and change. Maybe you change jobs. Maybe you go to a variable income. Maybe you've got a partner now and you're trying to manage it together and you both don't quite, you've got your own ideas on how to manage money. And those prescriptions tend to fall down when those changes happen. And I guess the reason we started to focus on this is because we saw a lot of people come to us and the, the words, the things that they would say to us were just wrong. Like they would internalize the failure as their own character problem. I can't save something wrong with me. Instead of ah. actually looking at the system, they're thinking I've got a self-control problem and actually the solution they've used is not fit for purpose anymore. Maybe it was uh, two or three years ago. Mm. And then their life has changed. They're a different person. They've got different circumstances. They're given different constraints, but they're expecting that solution to come with them the whole way. And like I said, prescriptions are great when your life doesn't change. And that's where we need to shift into a practice. That's what we learned is that you need a practice that moves with your life, that aligns with your values, and it fits your goals as well. So, Terry, um, I'm really looking forward to sort of getting into these seven practices we call them seven principles yeah. yeah and i've just as you're talking i'm reflecting back on my own sort of <laughs> path as a saver same thing. or not um <laughs> and my answer to saving more um because it, it, it's obviously a habit and you can probably put parallels with going on a diet really can't you that if you eat lots of fat fatty foods and you don't exercise much then you're going to put on weight so you could focus on i've got to be on a diet or you could focus on eating less fatty foods and exercising more um and drinking less too probably um <laughs> so that's one thing one way of looking at it but i look at my saving ability to save i don't think i've ever saved anything in my life i just think i went and um upskilled and then earned more and then yeah. then i had more money than i sort of needed um, and so then it was easier for me to save, you know. So th there's there's that too, isn't there? I mean, the sense that, and then of course, I've you know, I got onto the property ladder, and, and all the mistakes that Megan and I have shared about our you know mistakes along our journey over the years, but also the the good decisions that I've made and how they've helped. But you've mm. got to start somewhere, don't you? And so I look back to when I was a non-saver. I'm not sure I could have become a saver when I I don't think I earned enough. 
How do you, you deal know, with I, that? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really glad you, glad you brought that up because it is a big problem that, that we see as well is that people get too focused on just saving as opposed to expanding their skill sets. The easiest way to save more money is to earn more. Mm. <laughs> the easiest mm. way. Mm. And so the and best not investment. Increase spending. You can't do that. <laughs> yes. <at the> same <laughs> time. That's, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and I, I think that's right. You know, um, the, the, the thing that we see is that you can earn more, but if you don't have a good financial defense, you just leak, you leak money. Mm. And what people tend to do is they will tell themselves that story like, oh, I'm just not a saver. And that's actually not true. <laughs> um, it's very possible for you to learn how to save. And it's actually very possible for you to enjoy it, believe it or not. It doesn't have to be something that constricts your life. It actually can be something that expands your life if you do it the right way. And that's kind of, I guess that's our whole thesis. You, you want to make, if you want to make something sustainable, you've got to make it enjoyable. And that means it has to link with who you are and it has to align with what you really care about. So very deep, meaningful, isn't it? So, well, there's, there's, well uh, yeah, of great interest to me is there's, yeah. there's a bit of a psychological basis to that, and and a lot about money and saving and investing actually has got because it has to be a mindset, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It can't be, you know, just put that in there and what are you doing it for? Absolutely, you know, and if you, you if you pop some money over there and you don't know what it's for then you're not overly motivated to continue to do that if it hurts your ability to have the lifestyle that you think that you want and should should be entitled to. 100%. Um, there's a historian, his name's Will Durant, and his number one insight, this is someone who's studied the whole of human history and nobody knows it better than him. And his number one insight about humans was humans are capable of exceptional things if they will only demand it of themselves. <laughs> And you need to be able to figure out how to create the conditions to demand it of yourself, to build the desire to be able to do it. Because you, if you look back on your life, you've done in, everyone has done something exceptional. Everyone has done it. And what I find really interesting is people tend to be able to, you know, zero in and focus on a home deposit, and then they lose that sort of focus. They don't have, they don't have, then like build a bigger picture. And then they go, I just can't seem to save now. I can't manage my mortgage. I don't mm. know what's going on. But all this, for the last three or four years, we've been doing nothing but that. You know, so it's not a problem of intelligence. It is a problem of commitment. It's a problem of desire. It's a problem of discipline. It's a problem of focus. Habit, I would think too. Absolutely. Yeah, yep. it reminds me of sort of people who diet. So they can have wedding, nice wedding photos, you know. Yeah. And then the wedding's <laughs> over and they pile on the 20 and kilos balloon. again. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Take us through this journey then, Terry. Okay, so let's talk about the thesis here. What we learned, what we've observed is that the way to save sustainably is to spend more intentionally. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that you want to focus on what you can control. So the way you spend actually dictates whether or not you'll save. So if you think about it like this, right, you can think about like a spectrum and I can be very deliberate and intentional on this end or I can be very impulsive on this end. The more intentional and deliberate I am with my spending, the more likely it is that I'll be saving. So that's kind of the main thing. You want to put put the process first, let the outcome take care of itself. And so the, every principle in our practice is all, they're all designed to help you spend more intentionally, not for you to help you save. And what we find is as a result of that, people just tend to save a whole lot of money. <laughs> Can you give us an example? Yes, definitely. Um, so there's a family up in Sydney who recently just bought a property in DY. Um, and so we taught them these principles maybe oh, probably about a year and a half ago. And um, 
you know, up until that time, they're doing okay. They're doing okay. They're saving money. They just don't feel like they're making the progress they could be. They don't know that they're doing the best they absolutely can. And they don't feel, consequently, that they can afford a property because they don't actually have a handle on their cash flows and whether they could afford any kind of mortgage, right? And so when we teach them these principles, it's not even just about the fact that they start to learn how to save and they actually do save better. What they start to do is they start to feel like the thing they want is within their grasp. And because of that, it's almost like they allow themselves to have it. <laughs> um, and so I got a message from them maybe sort of, I don't know, three or four months ago that was like, man, we could never believe that we could get a property here. We thought we were always going to have to settle and move out to one of these outer suburbs and just live in one of these places that, you know, we don't love. We just, we're on the ladder, you know, <laughs> we're on the ladder at least and we have to settle, but we're actually in the place we want to be. Yes, there's some work to do with this property, but we're in the location we really want to be. Um, so I think they're a really good example in a really tough market. You know, the last couple of years in Sydney, crazy. You guys know that better than me. Yep. Absolutely. So you're basically putting that down too. So like turning it on its head, our traditional um, or conventional wisdom is that you have to focus on saving once your bank balance go up. But you're basically saying that actually, no, you have to make sure that you don't spend your money on shit. And then if you don't spend your money on shit, you're probably going to have more money sitting in your bank account. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, I, my background sport, right? And all the best coaches say it, you focus on the process and let the outcome take care of itself. So if you're focusing obsessively on your savings rate, you may save if you're the most dogmatic, obsessive person you know, <laughs> you'll probably save, right? But what you're going to be doing is you're going to be shrinking your life. You're going to be shrinking your life, making it smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, focusing just on saving, it's like stepping on the scales every day and saying, why aren't I losing weight? You might actually do it, but the better way is to actually focus on whether you're eating well and moving more. Those are the things you want to pay attention to. So that's what these principles are all about. Whether your jeans feel a little bit looser. I exactly. really like the idea of this. It's not just about making sure that you're saving the money, but it's actually about what you're saving it for. So, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, the intentional spending leads to the intentional saving, but the saving in itself isn't what no one wants it's to not spend money in the bank. It's not about that. Yeah. Well, there's a small portion more about of people these that life yeah, that, that's true. There is. <laughs> Sorry, <what was> that? <laughs> it's a small proportion of people that do. I think they call it financial anorexia. You know, they never feel, they never feel rich enough, and so they just keep watching the balance go up. But that's that's some. Um, hopefully, that's nobody's listening to this that has that condition. So. <laughs> no, but you're right, Megan. You're right. It's and that is the first principle. It's focus on funding your life goals, not maximizing a savings rate. A savings rate, as you point out, it's an abstract concept. That that's a number like. Who cares? Money, money in and of itself is boring. But when you start to connect it to you, what you want, where you're going, what kind of life you're trying to live, it starts to become pretty motivating. Um, there's a session we do in our program. We call it Life by Design. We sit down literally for two hours with people and we facilitate this session where we draw that out of them and we want them to put this on a canvas and then we want them to feel like that is real. And I literally speak it back to them and I speak it back to them like it's the present. So I'll say, Megan, so it's 2023. You've sat down, you've got this whole thing dialed in and you've done this. You moved out, you moved over here. You guys went on this trip and on that trip, you were able to do these things you never thought you'd be able to do. Your kids were able to do X, you know, A, B, C, and D. And I take them through the whole thing because I want them to physiologically feel it. Um, and because the reason we do that is because there's some research from a lady called Emily Pronin from Princeton University, I think it is. She did some really interesting research using VR. 
And the research basically had people have a conversation with a digital render of their future self, a digital render. So it would be me looking at myself, but I would look 10, 20 years older and I would have a conversation with me. And then they got people to make financial decisions afterwards. And the people that had a conversation with their future selves then were asked decisions like, do you want to, I'm just going to give you an extra $2,000 a month. How much do you want to allocate towards your super? How much do you reckon the people that had conversations with the future selves wanted to allocate? So is this actually not the, com- not the content <laughs> of the conversation, but just the simple fact that that then makes the idea that I'm going to be around in 20 years and need that money more real? Yep. <laughs> so, so people, if you don't empathize with your future self, Mm. You won't look up. You won't look after that person. Won't look after. And them. so, what's mm. the, what is the easiest way to empathize with? Today. Exactly. So, what's the easiest way <laughs> to empathize with future you? you? Actually, set the goal. See yourself there, and then look back on you. So, what we do is we draw that out, and we have we speak it back to people, and then I tell them everything we just put down on the canvas. I want you to write a letter from future you to present you, thanking you for what you're about to do, <laughs> um, <laughs> and that. That changes people's ideas around money. That takes money from numbers to a tool. Also um, changes it from a you know a handbag today to a you know how much how much exactly. compounding um, effect would it have if I didn't spend that three thousand dollars today? And the reason why that's the case is because it now surfaces trade offs. This is super important. Something we've learned. We know this already. Decision science tells us that we make better decisions when we we think about trade offs. This or that not have this or not have it. So if I don't have the goal and I don't have the bigger picture vision of my life, right, then that handbag you're just talking about there, Megan, it's a decision between to have or not have. That's a very constricting conversation. That's yeah. the Well, to have is going to win, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Particularly <laughs> if you've worked hard for it and you feel like it's time that you had a reward. Oh, that's hilarious. You're a human and what do humans do? They will rationally value the present over the future because the present's certain. The future is uncertain, but the more you can actually see that future, now you surface the trade-off. So it's not a decision of have or not have the bag. The decision now is to have the bag or to have the house. <laughs> and as soon as I do that, I think much clearer. I'm going out of my animal brain. I'm going into my human brain. That's quite fascinating. So did you I bring all the sports psychology into yeah, this? Well, you were a strength and conditioning coach? I was, yeah. But what yeah. I learned in my role as a coach was I was working with people between the years more than I was anything else. Yeah. So I had to understand behavior very well, right? Because my job is to get you, you're an elite athlete, you're at the top of your field, but I've got to get you better. And how am I going to get you to do that? You, everything's already going really well for you. Everyone's got this misconception that every elite athlete is just 100% motivated every single day to just drill it and just do the absolute most. It's actually not the case. There are a lot of people that are very talented and they're making great money and they're actually not reaching their potential. And it's your job to get them there. So for me, I learned very quickly. And probably a part of this was because I was so young, right? I had all the accumulated knowledge. I walked in when I was 24. And I remember knocking on the door of the Richmond Football Club. And if you're in Melbourne, Richmond Football Club is one of the AFL teams. Um, and I knock on the door thinking, hey, how good am I? I've made it. I'm 24. I'm at the top level of my field. How good am I? And the door opens and I look up. I keep looking up. <laughs> and, it's Matthew, and it's Matthew Richardson. So Matthew Richardson is like, I don't know, Sonny, Sonny Bill Williams for the, rugby, for the rugby people in Sydney, right? And Matthew Richardson at that time is 34 years old and I'm 24. And now I'm in charge of him and I'm going to be telling him what to do. 
And so I learned very quickly in that moment, actually what I know means dick. It doesn't matter if I've got the specialized knowledge, how I get it across to you and whether you commit to it is the difference because you could be compliant or you could commit. And the difference is, you know, in terms of performance is commitment. How do I get you to commit? So at that it's point, I internalizing the, the, the need, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So at that point I was like, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to look around and I'm this, I'm in this elite environment now. I'm going to focus on who does the, what are the best coaches do and how they act differently? What do they know? So it was like this laboratory where every day I got to go in and try these different ideas, watch and observe, learn and, and practice basically and understand what is it that makes people achieve their goals and how do they change their behavior and what makes them stick to the boring stuff for long enough to get the big results. Mm. Cause that's essentially what it is. That's all it is. Doing the work. Mm. Yeah. Consistently. Yeah. <laughs> no yeah. silver bullets. But actually, consistency is not necessarily one of your fundamentals, one of your principles, because you actually talk about calibrating money monthly, not just set and forget. So consistency is not just about do it the same way every time, all the time. Yes, good point. That is the second principle. So we say calibrate monthly, don't set and forget. So again, I'll go back to those prescriptions. A prescription will tell you just set up these percentages, average percentages, just put this in place and then just forget about it. Go back. Don't think about your money. Just go and do your, th- do your thing. Um, and we're saying, no, sit down, calibrate your monthly, your money monthly. And the reason we say that is because when you actually do that, you get a chance, an opportunity, if you like, to acknowledge what you have made and what you want it to do for you. And so when you automate your money, and I'll talk about another one of these principles a bit later on, it's a little bit similar but different. When you set and forget, you're actually just, you're moving away from your money. You're not, you're actually not thinking about it as a tool at all. It's something that's just kind of running away there in the background. So when you sit down and do it, you get a real sense for what is coming up and, wh- and how you're going to map your money to that month. Um, and that's really important because when you do sit down, calibrate it, you can you can kind of see what is what is coming up. So the classic one that most people, that trips people, people up is, um, oh man, that rego bill just come in. It's 800 bucks, all right? Um, now the prescription, that's where the prescription doesn't work. You're like, because it's not the average month. You had two or three bigger bills and it's come in and now you think, oh man, I just can't do this savings thing. But when you look at the actual month, <laughs> you'll see it. And, I, and I'm kind of overlapping here because there's another one that's like, What's the next principle, which is like plan for the actual month, not the average month. Um, so we'll just we'll just Let's roll that in because I <laughs> yeah. think that's an important one because some of the, some other theories suggest that you you know kind of extrapolate over the twelve month period and Ooh. and plan for that that yep. registration that would come in in a certain month, but you would have built up in a perhaps a separate account, you know, a bills account for for one of a better better word. Um, it was how yep. I I was taught when I. Um, first went into real estate and you don't have a very high, actually back then you didn't have any base salary and all you earned was commission. So there was an advisory company out there that was trying to help real estate agents not end up in a hole because they spent all their money one month and then didn't have any money the next month because the commission wasn't coming in. So I, I digress. But the idea being that the old models talk about doing that over, you know, kind of making it happen over a 12 month period. Um, but your idea and, and what you teach is you actually plan your cash flow. Cash flow? Is that the best yep. way of putting it? Plan, plan your money. Map it plan, to the plan actual Plan your money, money for the month yeah. that's coming up. Yeah. And the reason we say that, again, this is, not, this is actually not what we think anymore. It's what we've seen. 
um, it's actually how people respond to what happens. Okay. So there's a guy, um, you guys have probably heard of this guy, Herbert Simon. He's an economist. He's a Nobel Peace, Peace, Nobel Peace Prize winning economist. That's a really, that's a mouthful. Um, and he came up with the idea of satisficing. So satisficing, most people know this, but it's, um, it's the idea that you can either, uh, let me get the wording right here. You can find optimal, optimal solutions for a simplified reality, which is essentially what you're saying. You simplify reality and you come up with very specific, you know, a percentage, you know, do this percentage, put it here, do that, do that. That's, that is you finding a specific um, optimized number for a simplified reality. Okay. The other way to satisfy us is to find satisfactory solutions for a more realistic world. Here's why we advocate for the second. The reason is, is when you actually deal with a realistic world, you, you can deal with what comes up constructively as opposed to reactively. So if you're on those prescriptions and then the month is not an, it's not the average month, it's an out of average month. Now you feel like, I mean, this plan doesn't work. Something mm-hmm. wrong with me. I can't, I can't do this. I've got a self-control problem. This saving stuff sucks. I'm failing. Um, BJ Fogg. BJ Fogg is the reason that we're all addicted to Instagram. He's the guy that made it addictive, right? And he wrote a book called Tiny Habits. And he's got a, mo- he's got a behavior framework. And he literally shows you on a map what makes people do stuff. And do you want to know his number one insight from all of his research at Stanford and with all these addictive apps about what changes people's behavior? Yes, I want to know. I'll tell you what it is. It is, we don't change by feeling bad. We change by feeling good. Ooh. So when things work out, when our plan works out, when we work our plan, we do this and we're getting better, we're feeling good. You want to do more and of it? Our, and our brain encodes that. It's literally a dopamine response dopamine and the brain's like, mm. give me more of that. All right. The thing I... The thing I learned when I was working with an athlete was it's not my job to motivate them. My job was to string together very quick, short wins. So they felt this sense of momentum. And I knew that when I could get them to a certain point where they see that progress, I don't motivate anyone. I only create the conditions for people to get motivated. And so that is why we flip it on its head. We do it the other way because we saw the people coming to us saying, we just can't seem to work out how how to save money. They're feeling bad. And they jump off those bandwagons. They're like, you know, yo-yo dieters. I'm going to be on the barefoot bucket system one month. <laughs> I might be on the 50, 30, 20 another month. And they're just like, oh, and, you know, I can't do it. There's something wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with you. You're a human and you've got a very dynamic life. Your life changes, it moves, it shifts. And so you should move with your life, right? So our unifying theory is that the way to save sustainably is actually to spend more intentionally. Interesting observation. All right. Can I get you to move... Now, so we talked about planning for the actual month. What about when you're allocating money? Because this is a really mm. interesting way of doing things. I, l- I actually love this. But before that, I, I, earlier you said, Megan, about consistency and that, you know, setting up for set and forget type systems feels like it's consistent. But I guess it's your counterintuitive approach, isn't it? The consistency is actually the reviewing on a regular basis. Mm. That's the consistency. So, um, yeah, I love that. And this, I know what you're coming up with now, and I love this. So stay tuned, everybody. Go, Terry, tell us all about it. (laughs) Okay, so the next principle is when you are sitting down and you're mapping your money to the month and you're mapping it to the actual month, not the average month, what you want to be doing, the money that you want to be mapping, you want to be allocating old money, not new money. Now, (laughs) 
I know Ooh, nobody thinks about money as old and you. <laughs> no. Let's do that. So, oh, I do I think it's old money being, being, you know, people have had money in their generation for generations. Yeah. That's old money. <laughs> so I could just say this a bit more simply and say old money is money that you've kept. It's the money you already have on hand. All right. New money is money that's coming in. Okay. So I haven't so, received it yet. So yeah. it's what you've got in your hands versus what you think is going to come in for the month. Exactly. Yeah. So you're not setting up your plan thinking I'm going to make 11, 12, 14, 15 grand this month. You're setting up your plan saying last month I had 10 grand and that's the 10 grand I'm going to be mapping for this month. Does that make sense? So let me explain why this is important. Um, We we have a family come to us and these guys are such good people, just salt of the earth people. So these guys are super stressed, working really hard and they've been working with a company that's been trying to help them with their money. But the model they've been working with is basically hand over control of your money and we'll take control of everything. We'll pay all your bills for you um, and we'll give you a stipend that you live on. Okay. And so it's kind of that, it is that fat camp kind of mentality, you know. We control everything. It's that biggest loser model. Control yes, the works. calories. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, while you're with us, you're going to be fine. Um, yeah. And the yeah. problem was they were just super, super stressed, super stressed. They're like, we don't know where we're at. We don't know. We feel like we're working really hard. We don't know what's going on we don't know where our money is and so we kind of we sat down with them and we actually consolidate everything and we showed them where their money was we showed them how much they had and how much they felt they had versus how much they actually had were so far different they're so different so on paper these guys were well north of a million dollars but where the money was where it was configured and how it was being used not helping them at all and so one of the biggest changes we made was obviously let's take back control of your money. <laughs> um, but we taught them this model of actually, you know, decoupling money coming in from money going out. And so oh, the reason that matters is because, yeah, because if you're spending as it's coming in, it feels like you're trying to grasp hand that's fall- grasp sand that's falling through your mm. fingers. Yeah? yeah. But if you are spending money you already have, it's not moving. It's sitting right in front of you. You can make very deliberate, very intentional decisions about what you have and what you want it to do for you. Now, we talked before about BJ Fogg, his number one insight. You guys remember what it was? People do things when they feel good about it. Good about them, yeah. Exactly. As opposed to when they feel bad. She's got a way better memory than I do. <laughs> so so like here's, <laughs> here's, here's an interesting side effect of this method. We've had people say to us, I kind of feel weird when I don't do it. I feel great when I do this. I feel great. I feel fantastic. We're like, what? Why is this? Um, and it turns out the reason is, is because it's a very practical way to practice gratitude, right? When you think about it. If you're mapping old money, money that you made last month, you're basically saying last month, everything we did brought us in, let's say $10,000. And what do we want that $10,000 to do for us? Where are we going to allocate that money? And how should that reflect what we want? So remember that big picture view. This mm-hmm. is you, this is where you make the conscious, deliberate decision every month to make that money do that for you. And so when you slow it down like this, people actually start to focus on what they have, what they want it to do for them, which means they're not focusing on what what they don't have and what they wish they could do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so your brain, your brain is like a shoot, and it will it will put its focus where you point it. And if you point it at the right things you get a very different result. And so what's happening is people are continuously seeing, hey, we got all this money and this is what it's doing for us. So that changes the way you feel about money, which means you think more clearly about it. 
And the other interesting thing about this is when you pull money as it's coming in, it pulls and it sits and it builds in an account. Guess what that does? Well, I would say ads in, uh, ad grows in value because of interest rates, except it doesn't, right? Moment. What does it do? <laughs> it doesn't. I would imagine it helps it you sleep better at night. Like I'm thinking of this it from does. a pure emotional and, and security um, and safety. Yeah, all those sorts of things. There's a lot more than just money that we're talking about here, aren't we? Because it's it's if you're focusing on on what I don't have, often that causes sleeplessness and that mm. leads to, you know, um, exhaustion and then things become heightened and, and more, you know, significant mm. when you're tired and you're stressed. And and if you have got a bit of control over how you're thinking about things and your mindset's in the right place, then a lot of other things become less difficult to deal with i don't know if that's 100%. the path you were going down but that's the path no, that i'm yeah, yeah. it's you know what it's it's slightly different but you're not wrong and i'll tell you how right you are so there's there is a bunch of research i think it's harvard don't quote me on this i'll find it for you if you want me to find it um and it shows that if you feel financially stressed your iq drops by 11 points oh yeah 11 I, I've, I've read that one yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, know what, what the amount was, but I certainly know. And and even, you know, yeah. Veronica, you and I, when things are really, you know, up and down in our businesses, you sometimes you're in this almost cycle, like this um, hamster wheel cycle of, of how am I going to get out of this? What have I got to do? And, and, you know, at a really micro level, when that's your household, it, it, it has to impact how you think and feel. Well, it closes down your options, your available options, doesn't it? Because when we're under stress, we we narrow instantly. This is our monkey brains, which is part of our animal brain, narrows down the focus. And so we actually feel like we have less options to choose from than when we're actually calm. And I guess if you've got money in the bank and you're not sort of staring at a negative, a big red number or, um, you know, then you've, you're going to naturally feel calmer than if you are, you know, financially stressed. So that makes Perfect sense. And we, we talk about like in the in the pace model in terms of our your first home buyer guide, step five out of ten steps is revise and correct. It's slow down. Yeah. I love the fact you say slow down. Everyone, particularly in a rising property market, and and even now we're talking about interest rates potentially going up and how to actually protect yourself against that. And one of the things that people will do when interest rates are going up, they'll be aware that basically their borrowing capacity is going to be restricted. Mm. You know, when interest rates go up, you can borrow less money. And so there will be this sort of bad panic. I've got to get in. I've got to get in. I've got to buy it out. And this sort of takes over our heads and we're not actually making rational decisions at all. So this is all very, very aligned, you know, with the whole mm. purchasing property, property hunting um, and Etc. Etc. Throughout life. So come on, you look like you're bursting to, to continue oh, no, right. telling this us what happens. Thrown out. Thought, well, you open. You ask the question. So you know, no, 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 if you've no. watched any of our podcasts, you know we're going to tell you what we think. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. No. So here's what happens as well, and it's just something we've noticed after a couple of years. People start to optimize their incomes because now every month they're actually seeing, particularly if you're in a couple, you're actually seeing together. We made this much last month. Something called the Hawthorne effect. You already know what the Hawthorne effect is, right? If you've ever used a step counter and you've been looking for opportunities oh. to find new steps, the Hawthorne <laughs> effect is the Hawthorne effect is when you shine a light on something, you'll tend to optimize it. Mm -hmm. And and so what this does is that every month it's showing you what you're earning. And so people start to go, imagine if we had we had another five hundred bucks a month. That's another six grand a year. What could the six grand a year do? 
And how much work do we have to do to make an extra 500 bucks? Well, not much. We could probably sell a few things. Maybe you could do a bit of this. And so you start to see people, this is what I like about see it, right? It's not, it's not just financial defense. Now start people start thinking more offensively, more opportunistically, and start thinking more expansively as well. Mm, love it. Ooh. So it fills in with possibility. Mm. Yep. All of a sudden yep. their minds but expand. focus too, Veronica, like mm. possibility is one thing, but if your focus is on, you know, in this case, saving for your, your deposit on your first home or, you know, first property, first investment pay your mortgage. <laughs> or, or actually making sure that you don't fall behind in paying your mortgage, if you get on the front foot, then when interest rates do rise, and look, we have, there's all, all the indicators are that something's going to happen this year and, and every bank and every economist and everyone can say what they think is going to happen. But let's just assume that it's going to go up because then if you assume and you plan for it, then you don't have the sleepless nights. So yeah. th- this is a way of actually getting in front of that so that you're not going, oh, my God, it's another quarter percent. It's another 25 basis points. It's another you know, the bank put it up, but the Reserve Bank didn't. Okay, well, so what? You know, you've, you've budgeted for it. You've worked it out. You know that you have the ability in your um, old money, not your new money, to, yeah. to get through that, that, that rate rise. It, could, it might not be interest rates. It could just be orthodontic bills or something. I mean, you know, mm. you get caught out quite often with uh, or it could be just, you know, <laughs> something you need a new roof that you weren't expecting yeah, we just had yeah. torrential rain in sydney there'll be a few new roofs so i would we. imagine oh my goodness <laughs> a month's worth of rain in brisbane in 24 hours we're recording this at the end of february anyway let's move on to yes yeah. yeah. i wanted before to. we talk about that though before we move on to number six i think it is we're up to you know you're talking about um allocating old money to money that's still in the account from last month as opposed to budgeting what you know you're going to earn this month how does that sit in with what a lot of, um, I know a lot of mortgage brokers, for instance, encourage their clients to do this, which is set up offset accounts and then actually live off their credit card and then pay the credit card off. And they say, you get one month interest free and true you do, but you only get one month for free for one month ever. Mm. Um, what what do you say about that? Yeah, so Ryan, my, my offside is much better at doing this than I am. Um, he's more of a numbers guy. I'm more well, of a- I don't know. You can talk to him. He's a bit more boring. But anyway, um, usually what we do is we run the numbers on that and we basically say, look, you know, so you might save, um, don't quote me on this, but it might be like $200 a year. Okay. Um, And what we've usually seen is that people save a lot more than $200 a year when they manage their money better. A lot more, a lot (laughs) more. So we basically say, what is the opportunity cost of that? And usually it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't line up um, because you being more deliberate with it. The other thing about this principle is that when you do allocate the old money, you do it in the right order. So Megan, we all know that principle will pay yourself first. Mm-hmm. We actually have those accounts set up. Those goals are there. They're containers that we fill up. Like we literally pour it into those containers before we start mm-hmm. talking about paying the bills or anything like that. And so that's not automated. We want you to do it deliberately because we right. want you to take that action. And so it's funny. Okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah, it is. It's it's quite counter to some of the automated models. Yeah. Where yeah. it just goes mm. it goes into a, an account or goes straight into a particular account that is for the bills or the slush fund or the mortgage, whatever it might be. Yep. It does yeah. come back to that intentionality, doesn't it? Because at the end mm. of the day, if you set it up, everything up automatically, it sounds logical. Because then if you don't know it, you don't see it, you don't get used to touching it. Um 
and you're what you're sort of suggesting, if I'm putting words in your mouth, is that if you do actively do this, then you are going to have more of a connection to what you're doing as opposed to the temptation to actually reallocate it and siphon it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. No, I would suggest the, the value of doing it, it far exceeds the $200 you might save in interest each year. Is, is that because, you know, going back to that, that, that um, ideology that if you see the successes, you're more inclined to commit to the successes? So if you're actually sitting allocating the money each month rather than being an automatic process, you're actually seeing what's left in the account or what, you know, potentially is moved to the mm-hmm. savings account as you mm-hmm. intentionally move it. Is, is that mm-hmm. that positive reinforcement that you talk about that, you know, when, you, yep. when you, your brain switches to that positive state of mind and all the endorphins yep. that come with that and the positivity around that? Yeah, you don't get um, that if you want to make. Negative, negativity mm. of, oh, we've only got $500 left this month. Yeah. So remember I said before, we're trying to find as many ways to make you feel good as possible. And so you, you miss a very valuable opportunity every month to feel great by tipping into mm. those goals and seeing that progress. It's a dopamine um, hit, ticking that. a box. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. All and right. particularly, you know, money is such a source of um, distress and conflict between couples. So if you can do this together in a positive way, that's almost like, you know, there's a little bit of couples therapy that can happen through this process as oh, well. Yeah. You know, the positive you reinforcement. Really glad you brought that up. And, I would say this is probably the best impact we have is with couples um, is because when you go through this process and like, it probably sounds really onerous, right? We're saying, no, stop, slow down. Do you know what? It takes 15 minutes or less. I was going to say, it's probably it once you sit 10, down, 10 this is the time we're doing, the kids are in bed, you know, it, yeah, it would probably simple. be a small period of time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You have a tool. It's not you sitting down with a, you know, with a calculator. <laughs> it's it's a tool that runs all the numbers for you. It's you acting as a CEO of your life, not the CFO. We don't want you to be a CFO. We want you to be a CEO who's making high quality decisions with great information. And so the point with couples is that this is such great modeling. This is the, for me, it's the perverse thing that I love is that when we work with a couple <laughs> and I tell them this, I'm actually helping your kid because when, when they see you collaborating around money and making, you know, having very deliberate, very constructive conversations around mm. money, guess what? Mm. They're not going to grow up feeling around money afraid. Mm. Um, and most parents connect with that and they go, that's exactly why I mm. haven't bothered with this until now is because I've felt bad about money, you know? Mm. Yeah, cool. It is. It's pos- positive role modeling in an area that isn't taught or we're not good at teaching it because we're fearful of it and, and often it's in a negative space and in a conflict zone as well. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Yeah, you hear all this um, chat about money personalities or your money type. Do you subscribe to that mo- that thinking? Um, look, I think those models are useful and we have like, we, we kind of talk about four different financial alter egos. Um, it's really just useful for you to understand yourself a little mm-hmm. bit, but it doesn't change anything. What changes is is a tool and then repeated behavior and exposure. So yeah. every, this is what we say to couples that really feel stressed about this. We're like, every month is another rep and every rep is another opportunity for you to change the way you feel about money. And every month is more evidence that you collect that you two can work together effectively around your money. That's how you change things. Yeah, I love it. So it's basically, you can, ha- you can have a blowout, but like if you reset every month, you know, it's okay. I had a blowout last month and this month, we're back, we know what to do. I'm back onto it. Yeah. Okay, number six. Good segue. That's a good segue to number six. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um, so review your money monthly. 
All right, not annually or never. Most people, they put those set and forget things in and then they just go, I've been doing this for three or four years and I don't know if it's working for me. We're, like, we're basically saying, no, 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 every month. And again, this doesn't take long. This, this can take five minutes for you to look back through it and actually look at what you intended to happen versus what actually happened. They very rarely marry up 100%, right? Yeah. It's not about getting it right. What it's about is about having a plan, doing your best to work with reality, to, to, to work with, you know, constructive with reality to make that plan work. So, you know, you're a couple hundred bucks off. Who cares? Across the year, you're fine. You're 100% fine, right? And so the reason this matters, and it's exactly what you just said, Ronia, if you review this monthly, what you're essentially doing is you're turning an infinite game, a game that doesn't feel like it ever ends. You're turning mm-hmm. it into a finite game. And guess what? Finite, wins, finite games are winnable. <laughs> um, so it means that you can you can have that game you can have that good feeling that win but by the same token if you don't win you can wipe the slate clean and you can go again you don't have to have that mm. you know mm. they talk about this in positive psychology that that sort of sense of value where people internalize it they think it's personal it's permanent and it's pervasive yeah. it stops that it stops that and it, it's sort of it's a circuit breaker for that and you sort of go wipe the slate clean you've got another another chance um, to have it's a learning opportunity too, isn't it? Like mm. what did we do then that yep. we hadn't anticipated or who, who blew it out? Do we need to change the way that we look at that? Yep. Um, there are spenders and savers and I, I don't know a single couple that I've ever worked with in buyer's agency in 18 years where there wasn't a spender and a saver. And yep. those two ideologies are often in conflict and, and they are, yep. you know, a source of great um, debate and, 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 and battle uh, over time. So we can't discount the fact that these different um, ideologies exist. My wife's we just a spender need to know how and a saver. To reward them differently. My wife's a spender and I'm a saver. So and she's we are- an intentional spender, I'm presuming. <laughs> <laughs> Does she have so- a slush fund? Does she have an allocation? Is there a way that she can have that dopamine hit that comes from spending money without interrupting the flow of cash and, and the big picture goals? Yeah, so we do. We give uh, couples have their own accounts and you're, you can do whatever you want in your own account. It's, it's not on anyone to tell anyone else how to spend their money. Um, but where we kind of, where we, where we have responsibilities together, we manage that together. Mm. Um, and so people like that because they're like, well, I still get to be me. Mm. I still get to, you know, I still get to blow on my cash on the first week of the month if I want to. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, bring uh, on the new suit. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, did I get all the numbers out of order or is there a seventh? Oh, there's one I missed. There's one I missed. Ah, so work with real numbers, not arbitrary, was, was one that we yeah. did yeah. skip. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to do that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's please. Let's round so it this out. Is, this is, you know, we've got the numbers all out of order, but this is the seventh. Whether it's number seven or not doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, so, so unlike the pay system where you must follow the, each step in order. <laughs> yeah, this is all, all of it. It's okay important. to get these yeah. principles not in order. Yeah. Well, I mean, reviewing is the last thing you do, but um, when you are working with real numbers, we talked about allocating old money, not automating new money. So when you're yeah. allocating, Allocate real numbers. Actually, put a dollar figure to it. Don't say twenty percent here, thirty percent there, fifty percent there. Ah. Um, and the reason we say that is because when you use a percentage, it's it abs- it, it creates what's called abstraction. Um, abstraction happens when where we feel a cognitive distance between our decisional behaviour and the actual reality of the situation mm-hmm. and so the classic example of this and it's very extreme um but like nazi germany happened because some, some people are in a tower saying we need to you know 
fix our population problem and they're making horrific decisions that they're not on the ground. They're not actually seeing the reality of what's going on. And so when you, when you abstract away the actual reality of your behavior, you can actually delude yourself and deceive yourself in very dangerous ways. Um, <laughs> so I know that's extreme, but I only give that example because, because I think most people think, oh, it's not a big deal, but this is the thing. So there's a family that come in working with us and they start, and after about six months, um, I get a phone call and the phone call is like, dude, we've been spending $800 a month on alcohol and we've been trying to get fit and healthy. That's like our number one goal for this year. <laughs> and you don't know that if you're not working with real numbers, right? Yeah. You, just, you just know percentages. And so you can kind of deceive yourself about what you, what's actually going on. And so when you work with those real numbers and you're mapping that real money, that old money, you can actually say, I am allocating this much to that. And does that align with what actually we care about? you know, what actually we want, who actually we are and where we're trying to get to. Um, and so because that's... 10% doesn't sound as much as $800. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> when you use a percentage, you know, if you up your mm. income, you actually lose the opportunity to make hay where the sun shines because mm. your mm. spending goes up with it. Mm. Whereas like Megan said before, you actually want to be going, what, that extra? I get to put that away. And so if you're working with percentages, it all moves up together. Mm. Yeah. Um, and you actually don't, you don't actually maximize your situation. Interesting stuff. So all of this approach really can help give you more confidence with money as well as um, help you sleep better at night. But also mm. actually, you know, if you do it, follow it, should give you more money. So, I mean, that all sounds pretty positive. And, you know, once you've actually got yourself a mortgage, you're going to want to feel you want to sleep at night. A lot, a lot of first-time buyers really have this mental uh, it's a huge challenge of taking on a mortgage for the first time. Do you know in my business, some of my first home buyers are in actually in the fifties, you know, yeah. and they've never before had a mortgage. And it's, yeah. it that is probably even harder, I think, you know, mm. potentially. But mm. to stare down the barrel of the, that huge debt, um, you know, can be really challenging. So I think to, to take control in a really proactive way like this of your money. I think is really, really important to help you not freak out so much by the, num the huge number of your debt. Oh, yeah. I think, the reason, I think the reason that happens is because a lot of people associate money, and, and this is how I've been conditioned, money is security. And, mm. um, and so, mm. you know, have money, feel secure, don't have money, not secure. Yeah. So you know, I'm sitting on, for me, before I kind of really got into this stuff and really understood it, I'm sitting on a massive pile of cash for like two or three years knowing intellectually that I should be investing it, but emotionally feeling like I couldn't do that because then mm. I'm giving my money, I'm putting my money in the hands of others and that would make me insecure. And so what I've found um, through the process of kind of doing this practice is that I kind of loosen my grip on money a little bit and I make very mm. dis different decisions now. I make more good life investments, I would say. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, you know, we, we did quite well last year. We, um, you know, in, a, in a quite a short period, we saved a good chunk of cash. And it was, it was ordained for the investment portfolio. And I was like, yes, this is going to actually be a massive boost. We've killed it here. And I, I had this thought and I realized, you know, my, our kids, our twins, they're, uh, they're three and a half. And they're only going to be three and a half once. And they're only going to be kids once. And something we talk about in the program, we have different kind of principles we follow. We always say memorable experiences over meaningless possessions and then time over money. So time, spend great time with people that you care about 
having memorable experiences. And I thought like, why do I have to put it in the portfolio and wait 10 years to then have a great experience? I don't have to, actually, I can buy that now. Um, so we went out and the money that we were going to put in the portfolio, um, then we put that straight into a camper trailer and the camper trailer is going to be basically our vehicle for the next 10 years of memories for the family. Now, if you had said that I would have done that five years ago, I would have said, you're dreaming. You're dreaming. Um, I would have done it because that money, that was all about the future. It was all about security. And when you get on top of your money this way, you start to have this sense of like, you know what? Money's coming in every month. Actually, there hasn't been a month in the last 30 years I've been making money that there hasn't been money coming in. So why am I acting like it's scarce? It's not scarce. Time is scarce. And time with the people you love is scarce. And if you're not making the most of your money, then what's the point? Like that, that should be a vehicle. That's, that is wealth for me. Time spent with people you care about. Is, is, it, is it almost finding the right balance between living now but planning for the future? So it's not always about planning for the future and what is it that we want in our retirement or when the children are older. It's, it's actually, um, and, and you said it earlier when we were talking, changing the way you feel about money. So making sure that, as you say, we have these opportunities to build memories and to have the time with the people that we love at the time of their life, which is now, um, mm -hmm. not just wait until they're teenagers and perhaps don't want to talk to us and come mm -hmm. in a camper trailer <laughs> because we feel like we're fin financially secure enough to do it. Yeah, exactly. Those windows are closing every day. We're just not aware of it. We're not really paying attention. That's why we say slow down. Think about this for a second because, yes, you need to find that balance. There's actually times in our program where we tell people, guys, you're holding too tight here. You're actually going too hard. And if you keep going this way, guess what you're going to do in about three to four months? You'll make some silly impulse purchase that doesn't reflect anything you want. <laughs> and it'll be, it'll be the subconscious part of you pushing back. Mm. So it's like giving yourself a little safety valves along the way as well to give yourself permission to actually enjoy the moment and not let life pass you by. It's been such an interesting chat. It's actually quite different in flavour to what it certainly, is. you know, me and I were talking about at the outset, that we need to give people some it's good totally, principles. We're going to change the title of this podcast right now. I hope it's been a positive change. Not, well, do you know a... what I took from this? It's humanising why mm. we manage our money. Mm. Yeah. Instead of monetizing why we manage our money. Yeah, life, and, life isn't lived in a spreadsheet. Yeah, and also taking the focus off that um, accumulation or the numbers, you know, measuring success by numbers in your bank account or a number of properties you own or those sort of really yes. numeric, really Arbitrary. meaningless sort of mm. um, measurements. This is really about quality of life and making, like you said, the, the camper trailer is one thing, but it's, it was an intentional decision, as you said. You really thought it through and you challenged your own, you know, preconceived ideas to what you're going to do with it. Now, I know that off air, Terry, you told me that you guys have just bought your first home to live in. You've had yeah. property as investments, but you've recently just bought your first home. A question that we ask all of our guests is what is one thing that you know now that you wish you knew as a first home buyer? And given that you you actually literally, as we speak, are a first home buyer, <laughs> perhaps you could share with us, you know, maybe a, a distinction between how you felt or how you went about buying your own home versus buying an investment property. Mm, you want to give us just an insight on that one? That's a good question. Um, the investment property was... Oh, it was all numbers and it was all, and I would say that the decision, those decisions were actually 
quite shit when I look back on them. <laughs> you shouldn't <laughs> like, laugh, but, but we have another podcast. Good, I love self-reflection. <laughs> yeah, no, no, seriously, where they were really bad decisions. Um, but you know what? Like, I, I consider all that as education. Um, I understood who I was as an investor. Um, as a result of those, and I think I talked about this on the elephant in the room. I talked oh, about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyone um, wants to so listen we, to that episode, I'll look it up while yeah. you're talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so have, have a have a listen to that if you want the full story. But um, I I guess what I learned there was like we were just we were just trying to optimize, and again, like we were just like trying to make the numbers work, and and also I'd say there was a lot more um, there was a lot more short term type thinking in that decision. Whereas this, this home decision for me, it actually was one that I came to pretty quickly. It wasn't on our plan. It actually wasn't on our plan for three to five years. Um, so we're really more focused on doing the business up as an asset first. Um, and the business is, is going cr- pretty good, pretty happy with it. Um, the thing that changed for us and the thing that changed my calculus was 2020, 2021, and seeing what governments, the result of that government stimulus and knowing that if that happened again, it would only be harder um, because that, you know, that excess money that comes into supply, it chases a constrained stock of housing in Australia and mm. nobody's going to fix that anytime soon. And so the, the prices keep bidding, keep getting bid up. And so I realized, look, if my living costs are going to keep going up anyway, I can anticipate my rent's going to go up if I stay renting. Um, I may as well live in a place I like, I can call my home. And actually I want well-structured debt to protect me from inflation as opposed to being punished by it. And so we, I kind of went, well, you know what, let's do it. And then within six weeks, we owned a house. Um, but we went very slow to go fast. So every week, every single week, I would be out. I would be going to open homes. And it's probably the benefit of being a business owner. I can go to open home at any time. And I went to heaps. And what I learned, your, your question was, what did I learn? Probably the most important thing I learned is there is no such thing as the market. Um, <laughs> there, is, there, is, there is a market on a weekend. There is a market in a suburb. There is a market post that news article. And it yeah. always changes. And so there's opportunities within that volatility if you are ready. And that's what happened for us. We were ready at the right time. And we actually were able to take our property off, like take it off the market before the auction. And, you know, I, I'm happy to say we bought it for about 40, 45 grand less than I would have paid at auction. Um, and so for me, what, what happened was we went slow to go fast. So we had all the conditions ready. We had everything right to go. And then when, we, when everything lined up for us, we moved very quickly and we made that decision. But the thing I learned was there is great opportunity if you're willing to, um, I guess, get your hands very dirty and just do the work to be able to get a sense. Because I could see weekend in week, like one weekend to another weekend, I'm like, this is a completely different sentiment. That's a different kind of buyer. They're acting completely differently. The demographics are different. Um, and then I could see in the different suburbs how that was shifting and changing as well. So what I learned, the lesson is there is no market. Um, you just have to keep you have to keep going and you know getting right amongst it I guess it's immersion isn't it um, and, and immersion isn't as necessary in a slow moving um, buyer's market but immersion and understanding different behavior and and effects on people and sentiment as you say is so impactful on people and it, often what's written in the paper in the morning what they hear on the radio, um, what the latest bank forecast is, these things affect things very short term. And if you, as you say, you've prepared, you've gone slow and you're ready to act fast, that is a powerful position to be in as a first home buyer in an unstable market. Absolutely. It's, mm, I think there's great, great opportunities and I, and I totally, 
like to be honest, I I really have been kind of resistant for the whole home ownership thing. I feel like too many people just get into it and they just sort of like, they're almost like lambs to the slaughter, just being led down these lines mm. to shitty properties. And it's just like we've got to get on, you know, that 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 word. We've got to get on the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I and I've been one who's just been like, listen, I'll do what I want. And then I had to acknowledge I had to be practical post COVID. I was like, listen, all right, we should probably do this now because we probably couldn't afford for that to happen again. Because if it did, mm. it might it might be out of our reach. Yeah. Um and I only knew that because we're all over our cash flows. I'm like, we can do this now. We can do it. We can act very quickly. And we had the right team around us. That's the other thing I'd say. Have great people around you. It makes, them, it makes the biggest difference. Well, that is so good. And that is number one in our pay system is actually getting your support crew sorted. So <laughs> you're spot on there. That's a great story. And I think that um, what is important, like you say, slow down to move fast and be mm. prepared and do all your research immerse yourself, understand what's going on, realise that there's not one market, there's markets within markets and, you know, and then things change. And and it's all of that, you know, that people want to take shortcuts and it comes back to what we said at the very outset, which is doing the work. You have to do the work and it's worth it to be confident with the decision you make so you're not like one of those little sheep in the going to oh. be dunked in the sheep dip with everybody else anyway hey, if i can um if i can plug you guys here for a second the value of the right people around you i can't overstate it um yes. the thing you have to realize i think in real estate is that if you're an outsider you are playing a zero sum game and that means someone's going to win and someone's going to lose um if you have access to insiders you get to play a positive sum game which means there are long-term relationships that veronica has with different estate agents and they know they're going to look after her. She's going to look after them. They're not going to screw you over um, <laughs> because you're in with her. All right. So that's a pretty important thing to understand, right? You've got to understand the incentives of the marketplace you're in. It's very, it's, it can be very transactional. Um, and unless and until you put an offer in, you're just another number. And the estate agents don't give a shit about you. You're a tie kicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you've got to change that story. Um, and the more you can do that and the more you can get yourself from that that sort of zero sum, winner take all, sort of someone lo- someone wins, someone loses, get it to more of a positive sum game, you're going to do so much better. Like we had such valuable information um, from our buyer's advocate down here. Like we had inf- inside information that I could never have paid for. And mm. I knew when we were bidding, I actually knew where the other guy was at. Yeah. Um, and so I knew when I, I could tell his increments and when he started coming down, um, I knew where he was at and then we went up and, he, and we went up because I wanted to tell a very specific story, which is there's plenty more power to hear, buddy. Love the psychology of of Mm. bidding and making offers in different increments. But anyway, that's another podcast as well. Terry, (laughs) that's been great. Thank you so much. I know that you've, you've, um, we'll put the link to your website in the show notes if people want to check out what you do. And we really appreciate your time. Love you. Thank you. Loved coming on. And uh, maybe I can just quickly give my podcast a plug as well. Oh, sure. Go for it. Only if you let us on it. Are you going to let us on and help your your listeners? We're um we're gonna be doing a real estate series soon. So I think we talked about that. I'd uh, love to have you guys on. Yeah. All right. So what's your podcast? Passive Income Project. Um if you listen if you listen to season one, that's an audio course. That'll take you from I don't really get this money thing to you know enough to be dangerous. Sounds cool. I hate the name of your podcast. Now I remember now we discussed it actually on the elephant in the room. And it's like, you know, the passive income sounds like all those dodgy property spruikers. But Does it's sound not, a little spruikerish? But it's not about that, is it? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a mercenary title. It's one people search for. <laughs> so, clickbait, oh, guys. Clickbait. I see. SEO. SEO. All right. <laughs> well, we'll see you there. 
<laughs> All right, thank you, guys. Joe, that was fantastic. There's a lot of really good stuff in there, and I like the way that you approach things. From a things, you've obviously brought a lot from your work with sports people, and and I'm quite I quite enjoy that side of it. Um, but how you actually turn a negative into a positive from a mindset point of view is great. Yeah, thanks. That's no, um, it's definitely a combination. So um, Brian's my business partner, and um, we've got very different complementary skills. He brings a very good sound technical knowledge to it. Yeah. Um, and we sort of complement that with the behavioural understanding and, and that's kind of how we've come up with something different, I guess. Right. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.